K-A-L-W. It's like unhinging my jaw and being able to smile from ear to ear um, and just look around and feel both safe and celebrated for like the first time. Queer surfers are changing the culture of surfing in the Bay. Dancing on the waves, being silly, being playful, letting go of quiet, serious lineups. We paddle out with the Queer Surf Collective. Then we'll hear from some of the first surfers to brave San Francisco waters. And in that, I said, if you can learn to surf here at Kelly's Cove, you can learn to surf anywhere. And we talk about San Francisco's school district, what's working and what's not. It's a combination of recognizing we're going to have to make those tough decisions about staffing. The future of public education. I'm Sunni Khalid in for Hana Baba, and this is Cross Currents. When you think of surfing, you might imagine the warm shores of Malibu and San Diego filled with beach blonde dudes waiting for the next wave. Today, we meet one group working to bring more diversity to the lineup in a new story from our series, Culture Keepers, profiling people who uplift traditions in their Bay Area communities. I was very much fascinated by bells and lights and whistles. It's my role to learn it well and protect it and keep it. Alors, je vais faire l'explication en anglais. <laughs> Soyez tolérant. <laughs> Just the energy and the drive that they have, like the future is looking f***ing golden. Northern California waves are colder and wilder. Two barrier surfers are taking hold of that wildness and the possibilities it opens up. Kayla Langan and Nick Brisebois are the founders of the Queer Surf Collective. The group invites all bodies, all boards, to surf differently and more inclusively. KALW's Lena Basuni learned how they are pushing queer culture from the bars to the beach. Sun's coming out a little bit. Kayla Langan's crouched down on the beach with their messy bun and undercut facing the sky. They're waxing their turquoise surfboard. It's short and it looks fast. Could definitely stand to strip the wax off this board. Put some fresh wax on. It's 9 a.m. The still air is thick with salt at Pacifica's Lindemar Beach. The Taco Bell Cantina glistens like a lighthouse on the shore. It's the meeting point for the Queer Surf Collective Community Day. The bobbing heads of surfers crowd the waves. They look like a thousand buoys afar. On shore, I'm watching a group of queer surfers shuffle across a maze of surfboards strewn across the sand. Everyone's stopping to pet a little dog with a pride flag leash. Kyla's beckoning everyone into an intro circle. All right. Thank you all for being here. Super appreciate everybody coming today. And then they throw it to their co-director, Nick Brisebois. Hey there, my name's Nick. They, she, Capricorn, Aries, Pisces. And this is, it's so fun to roll up and see queer cuties on the beach. I love it. Nick's got a camera around their neck and they're keeping everybody hydrated. Did you have a yerba mate yet? I did. Do you need more sugar? Together, 
Nick and Kyla are partners in life and in their passion to bring all bodies and all boards to the beach. And with this collective, they're doing just that. Take it from one of the queer cuties at the meetup. My name's Will. Uh, my sign is Gemini. That's all I know. That's all you need to know. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Will Lang's been surfing at this spot on and off for the last 20 years. I could never imagine that a bunch of queer people could take over the lineup. So I'm here to be part of that. Kyla and Nick founded Queer Surf in 2016 to make the unimaginable, as Will said, a reality. They wanted to queer the lineup. So what does that exactly mean? Well, first of all, a lineup is where you literally line up to catch a wave. But it's not quite first come, first serve. Sometimes it's about how much you can dominate the waves or how much of a man you can be. How aggressive you are and how, you know, fast and how much spray you can throw. Queering the lineup also means honoring the indigenous roots of surfing. A lot of people have this entitlement and they treat their waves like their property. Instead, the collective is making the beach more accessible to everyone. They offer lessons and surf trips up and down the California coast and community days like the one we're at today. They make sure everyone has everything they need to be safe in the water. They bring boards and wetsuits to share, and they teach folks how to read the waves, how to paddle. Um, how about this one? So start paddling. And most of all, they've built a community of people who understand what it means to be queer, to have queer bodies, to maybe not have grown up with access to the beach or the resources to play in the water. And Nick's journey to making the beach a more inclusive space didn't start with Queer Surf. By the time Kyla was 12, they were surfing competitively, then professionally. But soon enough, it became clear that Kyla had to leave a part of himself behind if they were going to stay in this industry. I actually was told by my team manager that I had to, quote, keep that under wraps and that I wouldn't be sponsored still if I was out. So, they dressed more femme. No one queer held hands with their partners. The thing was, there were queer surfers everywhere behind closed doors. But out on the shore, it was a don't ask, don't tell vibe. I had to kind of leave the industry in order to kind of come out and be more okay with my queerness and kind of settle into who I really was. In a different beach town, Nick struggled with the same exclusivity. So they traded boogie boarding in their small beach town for late night dancing at El Rio and queer community in the mission. Then Kyla and Nick got together. And sure enough, Kyla brought Nick back to the water. Then their friends took notice and they wanted in. They started asking for surf lessons. Yeah, we wanted to get people to the beach, out of the bars and onto the beach. And so, Queer Surf was born right into California's gay capital. It was like, well, if we're together on this, maybe we can 
push back a little bit on the surfing or carve out a little space. <laughs> and now I'm standing in that space right here at the community meetup. It's like unhinging my jaw and being able to smile from ear to ear um, and just look around and feel both safe and celebrated for like the first time. Aline Spindle's been surfing for 10 years. Back when she first came out to a session with Queer Surf, she only caught three waves, but it didn't matter how many she missed. In this carved out space, queer means abundance, means community, means being silly, means making mistakes. Nick tells me they have a name for this particular flow. The queer art of failure is a guiding principle in life that whatever we're doing or trying is okay and perfection is not the end goal. Surfing queer is not always about how many waves you catch. It looks like dancing on the waves, being silly, being playful, letting go of like just quiet, serious lineups. But no matter the style, they say at the forefront of queer surf is radical inclusivity and pushing against conventional expectations. And celebrating all bodies and all boards and whatever getting free on the beach looks like to you. At Queer Surf, the ocean is not an escape. It's a portal, an open door to togetherness. It's space in the lineup for community. Queer Surf sits in that carved out opening and makes way for those left behind. In San Francisco, I'm Lena Bassuni for Cross Currents. Lena is a fellow in our Audio Academy. You can find more stories like this one at KALW.org slash crosscurrents. Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Suni Khalid in for Hana Baba. If you've ever tried swimming or surfing at San Francisco's Ocean Beach, or even stuck your big toe in the whitewash, you'll find it's not for the thin-skinned. Well, for one thing, the water is much colder here. Surfing in the cold, cold, cold water, even in the summer. <laughs> it was cold water. People thought we were crazy going in this water. We'd all come out looking purple. We would be out in the dead of winter at dawn, cold. You know what a cold winter day is like, foggy? Take and take the cold water. Those are the voices of Bill Hickey, Al Peace, Bill Walkup, Johnny Valera, and Arnie Jin and Wong, recorded back in 2014. They are some of the first 
to surf Ocean Beach. Back in the 40s and 50s, they braved the treacherous currents and bone-chilling waters without wetsuits to catch waves on everything from blow-up mattresses to 12-foot wooden planks. Many of the original surfers have left Ocean Beach. Mortgages, jobs, and families replaced the swells and surf wax. Over the years, though, they've gone back for reunions to pay tribute to the early days of surfing. KALW's Angela Johnston brings us that story from our archives. So right now this board has gotten a little worn out. So I'm gonna put a new coat on it. In his backyard in San Francisco's outer Richmond neighborhood, Arnie Jin on Wong is coating a pink and white striped eight foot long surfboard with a new type of clear surf wax his friend developed. So he just made a couple cans and I put one coat on my board and it lasted like six months. This board is one of dozens in Wong's quiver. They're all over his backyard, resting on fences next to tomato vines, suspended from the rafters of his garage. A few faded and yellowed boards are heaped in a pile he's donating to children in the Philippines. Yeah, that one right there. That one's a 10-foot uh, John Peck Maury Pope board. And that one was ridden in the contest in 1965, I think. Wong began surfing Ocean Beach when he was a teenager back in the 60s at a break near the Cliff House and Seal Rocks. Locals call it Kelly's Cove. Some tell me the beach is named after Old Man Kelly, a hermit who used to swim back and forth to Seal Rocks every day in the 40s. Others say the name came from an old billboard for Kelly Tire Company, which hung on a cliff on the eastern side of the Great Highway. The break was originally bordered on the south by a pier that was part of Playland at the Beach, an old amusement park that ran along the shore. On big days, we used to climb up on the pier and just jump off the end instead of having to paddle out. So that was like a fun way to get in the water. Wong can still remember the feeling of standing up on his first real wave. It was huge, and, and I would have never done it alone. We were, it was our peer groups pushing each other, saying, you know, or, you know are you a sissy? Are you going to do it? And we're all going, oh, God. And we'd, we'd all kind of push ourselves out and then go way beyond our comfort zone. And, and all of a sudden, you're riding this glass wall that's so smooth that it's just, it's like riding on glass. And it was amazing. Wong says that during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the edge of San Francisco felt different, wilder. Where people came down to the beach in droves and played drums and people hung on the wall. And there was always a fire at the beach. You would start by going down to the beach and build a fire. There were no such things as wetsuits back then, Wong tells me. Just wool sweaters, brandy, and tire fires. You, you know, basically couldn't stay out more than 45 minutes to an hour. And when you came in, you were just frozen. And a fire was the saving grace. We can, we can psychologically say, um, no matter how cold it is, no matter how bad it is, there's a fire on the beach. But Ocean Beach changed. In 1972, Playland at the Beach closed. Tire fires on the beach became illegal. Wong moved away. I left San Francisco for about 35 years. Eventually, Wong moved back to Ocean Beach and started surfing again. But something was missing. And I went down to the beach and there was nobody there. And I couldn't figure out where anybody was. 
So I went down to the local surf shop and I posted a little picture of us at the beach. He picked a time and a date and asked anyone who recognized that photo to meet at the cove for a reunion. This was in 2003. On that day, about 75 people showed up, but nobody recognized anybody because it had been so long that people lost their hair, they got fat, you know, you know, they aged. Hey, Zen Boogie! Now the get-together has become a tradition. Every September, when the big fall and winter swells pick up, hundreds of surfers flock to Kelly's Cove and celebrate a culture they helped create. In recent years, the reunion has grown outside of Wong's group to include even earlier generations of Ocean Beach surfers. Have you talked to this guy yet? This guy is the oldest surfer on the beach. He was the first guy here when no one was even at the beach. I'll tell you all about it. My name is Al Peace. I'm 87 years old. And uh, when I was surfing out here at Kelly's, there was no one surfing. Peace's first board weighed 111 pounds, and he still takes it out from time to time. I have a board uh, that I donated to the San Clemente Museum, and all I'd have to do is go down there and uh, I could easily get it out of the museum for a day and surf. Today, the surfboards are shorter and lighter. Wetsuits are warmer, and the culture has changed. The lineup at Kelly's Cove gets crowded on good days, and new laws have limited fires to five pits on Ocean Beach. That's where the old-timers light a fire in honor of surfers who have passed away. Men and women of all ages read names written on paper, then toss them into the flames. When the ceremony is over, the laughing and talking starts back up. Some guys who haven't surfed in years pull their wetsuits on again and grab their old longboards from the seawall. Arnie Jinnam Wong begins to clean up, but takes a moment to tell me the gathering is about more than just a water sport. Just remembering a, a time in the life when there, there was a sense of freedom and you know, promise and hope and, uh, and that we were like pioneers of some radical surfing culture, you know. This Northern California surfing culture is now world famous. Surfers from all over the world seek out waves from Bolinas to Santa Cruz. But this culture wouldn't have been able to survive if it wasn't for the daring few who first made the cold and foggy outer lands of San Francisco their home. At Ocean Beach, I'm Angela Johnston for CrossCurrents. <laughs> Angela first reported that story in 2014. This is Cross Currents. I'm Sunni Khalid in for Hana Baba. Next, we'll bring you an excerpt from a KALW town hall about the future of San Francisco's public education. We held the conversation at our pop-up event space at 220 Montgomery. The panel was moderated by KALW's executive producer, Ben Shrefty. He was joined by Heidi Serratin, special ed teacher. 
Megan Toe, the student delegate to the SFUSD School Board, Yvette Baez Edwards from the SF Parent Coalition, and Dr. Matt Wayne, SFUSD's superintendent. In this excerpt, we hear from Dr. Wayne answering a question about the budget issues the school district is facing. We need to have a conversation about our resources. There's uh, coming from uh, this, we get funded through enrollment. And so as our enrollment declines, we get fewer, uh, you know, less funding. Uh, and then also we know the state now is facing a, a budget shortfall and that's going to result in less funding. Uh, again, the city really provides uh, uh, additional funding that allows us to do those arts and music programs and have libraries. Um, but we need to ask ourselves some tough questions about how are we going to use our limited resources to have the most impact on student outcomes, right? And so um, what we're, it really becomes then a community conversation about what we're prioritizing, what we're valuing. So, for example, we recognize we are facing a staffing crisis here in San Francisco um, and in education. And so we just made a significant investment in staff, staff salaries that we feel is critical to ensure that our schools are fully staffed from day one. Um, but then it does mean that we're going to have to consider the number of staff that we have to be able to provide those, those services. And uh, again, there's not just one answer to that. That's what we need to come together as a community to talk about what we value. But I'll give affirmative answer. Like one, one area where we know is important is if we say we are going to improve student outcomes um, and we have work to do around literacy. We're adopting a literacy curriculum, and we know that teachers are going to need to support and training for that literacy cur curriculum. So even as we're saying in some areas we need to tighten the budget, this is an area where we need to make sure we're investing because it's critical to move forward towards our goal that all third graders are reading um, when uh, by the by the end of third grade. And so the, again, that's a, a concrete example of the kind of discussions we need to have and trade-offs we're going to need to make of where we're investing and then where we're pulling back. Well, so to try to translate for myself a little bit with the raises that were given to UESD, the United Educators of San, or UESF, San Francisco teachers, then more money is going to teachers, but then there's going to be fewer teachers overall, right? Is no, yeah, and, and so, yeah, and we've said one of our strategies is aligning our staffing to enrollment. So we should have fewer teachers anyways because we have fewer students right now. And so uh, as we do our planning for next year, we're staffing according to the number of students we have. Um, and But that overall will end up in fewer teachers, uh, but still being able to provide the quality education that our students deserve. And will there be other cuts across programs uh, besides just reducing the number of teachers to, well, to have the number of teachers meet the number of students now? Yeah, so we're looking um, at central our central office and how we're organizing our central office for the same doing the same thing. Like where the where what are our priorities in terms of being able to improve student outcomes, and where might we be uh, able to or need to pull back on services that are are uh, provided. And then we're also looking at ways we can be creative to uh, bring in revenue or and find uh, you know, alternative sources to invest in our staff and in our schools. So like how we're using our properties and. And we're just about to, uh, we just actually have uh, released applications for um, teacher housing at Shirley Chosen Village. And to, where's that? Um, so where is that? I think that's, 
uh, out in Outer Sunset. And um, and you can go on our website to get the applications. And uh, and so we have other properties that we can develop for teacher housing as well as and to provide revenue. So I think it's a combination of recognizing we're going to have to make those tough decisions about staffing. And if we have fewer staff, our central office, those reductions, but also where we might be more creative with our, uh, the use of our assets to be able to bring in more funding. And to that point, are you considering selling other properties around the city? Yeah, so we have a facilities master plan and we're looking about how to use our properties and ideally bring how they bring in revenue that support, um, may, not necessarily just from selling them, but from how they could be used to, and we can get ongoing revenue through leases or other developments. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to pose this next question to all four of you, actually, but I want to start still with you, Superintendent Wayne. What upcoming cuts do you think would be most challenging for the district to make it through during this period of, you know, of needing to deal with budget deficit? Yeah. Um, and so we we talked about the great teams we have at our schools. And so I think you know, any reductions that impact those teams are going to be difficult. And uh, again, the uh, resource alignment conversation we're having, I know it maybe sounds like a euphemism, but we're really being actually very literal. How do we align our resources to the goals that we want to meet? Those resource alignment conversation needs to result in us being clear as a district, what are the key investments we need to make in terms of our of our staff. So I gave an example around coaching. Another example would be around supporting student social emotional health. At all of our schools, our high schools, we have wellness centers. And so we're making sure we still have a social worker at each of our schools to be able to support those wellness, wellness centers, right? But there's other positions that may be impacted that we have to see then what does that mean in terms of the support we're providing to students like Megan and all the other high school students and how it stays at the appropriate level while living within our means. That was Dr. Matt Wayne, SFUSD superintendent. The panel was moderated by KALW's executive producer, Ben Trefney. And you can find a link to the entire hour-long conversation online at KALW.org. Tune in tomorrow morning at 11. Black communities have fought against racial inequity and discrimination through protest and through humor. White people still, I don't know. Like y'all preparing for some shit. y'all won't tell us what it is. An exploration of black satire. That's tomorrow morning at 11. The Cross Currents team includes Pat McMahon, Molly Blair Salyer, James Rollins, Gonady Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Ottle, Lisa Morehouse, Angela Johnston, Marissa Ortega Welch, and Ben Shrefty. Our opening theme is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Suni Khalid. <laughs>